Welcome to the first podcast of Calling All Stations. Let me say right from the start, it is Calling All Stations. So that includes bus stations, charging stations, petrol stations. This is not going to be a podcast just about the railways, although of course the railways will feature quite a lot. And I'm working on this podcast in association with Kogitamus Limited, whose director, Mark Walker, will accompany me on this journey through the podcast world. Welcome, Mark, and uh, let's make a start on this. Thanks very much, Christian, and uh, lovely to be working with you on this. Right, well, we're going to be covering uh, a wide range of uh, topics uh, over the uh, the ensuing months. Uh, Hopefully we're going to do one of these uh, every fortnight to start with, and it might then kind of speed up to one a week uh, later. And uh, as I stress, uh, we're going to cover all aspects of transport. And if you have any ideas about what you'd like included in this, do email me via uh, christianwalmar, christian.walmar at gmail.com. So, Mark, uh, let's start off with uh, our uh, what's going to become a usual roundup of what's happening out there this week. Well, it's certainly a target-rich environment for transport news stories. I think we can say, Christian. But I'd say let's go. Uh, let's go off planet first of all for our top story because wasn't it marvelous to see Artemis One return from the uh, orbiting the moon? Um, the the first uh, of what we hope will be several successful expeditions over the coming months and uh, years. And, uh, and great to see that form of transport flourishing again. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm rather excited about this. I, I do remember being on the island of Formentera uh, when uh, the first uh, moon landing happened and Neil Armstrong's famous statement about it being a small step and all that. Um, and uh, yes, of course, since 1972, there hasn't actually been any more uh, people on on the moon. I do wonder if this is a valid kind of expenditure of money. And I think when you look at it, it really is because lots of scientific discoveries uh, emerge from something like this. And you know what? It gives people a, a kind of sense of hope and vision, something you know really to look forward to, uh, something that is exciting, something that brings people together in a way that few other things do and boy do we need it in these hard times yeah and i think we can we can look back to the 60s and 70s and many of the amazing technological advances that we now take for granted in our everyday lives um, owe their origin to the space program so non non-stick saucepans and uh, and computers indeed <laughs> and, and computers even words like software i believe right. owe their uh, their uh, roots to the space program so there's one uh, upbeat story to, to, to look at. Now, another one uh, close to your heart, I know, um, but in a completely different sector of transport has been the debate over whether uh, cyclists should be forced to wear helmets. Oh, this is a, a hardy perennial, uh, Mark. And uh, yes, in Australia uh, and a few other places, uh, cyclists are forced to wear helmets. And there's two very good arguments against this. One is that it deters people from cycling and we want people uh, to cycle and uh, uh, everybody, anybody cycling has uh, got a, a lower carbon footprint than virtually any other form of transport apart from walking. But secondly, uh, there's really doubts about whether 
uh, it actually helps uh, the cyclists. First of all, it might encourage drivers to drive more close to them because they say, oh, well, they've got a helmet on, they're not going to hurt themselves if they fall off. But also, it encourages cyclists to travel possibly faster. And you know what? It doesn't always help you having a, a, a helmet uh, when you uh, fall off your bike. I am uh, afraid that, you know, I'm a 70-plus old cyclist who never wears a helmet. Um, I've only kind of hit metal uh, one and a half times in my 50 or 60 years of cycling around uh, how, London. How do you, you hit it half a time then? Uh, well, uh, I, 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 the first time I was on the mall and I got knocked off by somebody opening a, a, a door on me. Right. And the second time, uh, I also was travelling towards some traffic lights last year and again, somebody opened a door on me. But it was such a light fall that I only counted it as oh, a half counted fall. counted as a half a fall. Yes, I didn't do any damage. The first time they actually broke the handlebars. But, you know, there's only certain accidents where helmets would, would help. And, you know, most cyclists who die, uh, die because they're crushed under under tyres or uh, under a lorry or something like yeah. that. Um, and, you know, that the helmet uh, really wouldn't help them one way or another. And as I say, it does give a sense that, oh, I'm inviable. I can cycle faster and more crazily. And, and to be honest, on the few times I've worn one when I've been on these very long distance uh, races, I can see it is it is quite uh, exciting to go really fast down the hill if you've got a helmet. Okay. So uh, there's a counter argument. Well, I'm full of admiration for your bravery in cycling in London on a regular basis. So uh, <laughs> let's let's leave it there. But uh, another... Um, a subject I know that's dear to your heart is the question of uh, autonomous vehicles. And I wondered what your reaction was to the announcement of the European Union's new project called Ultimo, um, which is designed to bring about the faster integration of autonomous vehicles into cities' public transport networks with on-demand services in order to allow for more sustainable accessible and inclusive mobility well uh, apart from them not being able to speak english and i've got no real idea of what that means at all except uh, yet more money going into uh, research on driverless cars and uh, look my views about this have been plain as expressed in the title of my book on this which is called driverless cars on a road to nowhere and uh, everything I've seen since writing that book in 2018 suggests they really aren't on a, on a road to anywhere, that uh, the, the complexities of developing them, the fact that nobody really wants them, uh, the cost of the equipment, uh, the fact that there's real uh, moral issues, there's legal issues, there's regulatory issues, uh, suggests that really th this is not going to happen. So this is, uh, yet the EU, just like our government, has been very enthusiastic about the idea um, and has poured money, development money, into startups and other companies. You think they've drunk the Kool-Aid on this, don't they? They've certainly, the Kool-Aid has been drunk by many people. And, um, you know, what does this mean, kind of making it more sustainable, blending in with public transport? I mean... Uh, it's all one of these kind of nonsensical ideas that uh, technology can solve everything. And, you know, last week I went to a 
conference organised by Zenzik, which is the UK's body that uh, funds research with government money, of course, uh, in autonomous vehicles. And they've so far spent about 250 million. And it was very interesting that the tone has completely changed over the years. Because I remember when I first wrote the book four or five years ago, I was invited to lots of conferences about this to debate with people about the future of driverless cars. And there's always somebody on the other side who say, would say something like, you know, this is going to change your life. This is going to be the most amazing invention uh, that there's ever been. It's going to uh, completely transform uh, the way that we get about, you know, your aged parents will be able to be driven to hospital safely in a driverless car. You'll be able to go to your office, send the car off, and then it will take your kids to school safely and park itself outside your house or uh, really, as the case may be, go and be used by other people because you're not going to have to actually buy this. You'll, you'll use a shared use vehicle. And all this is actually total nonsense. I mean, it's just completely unrealistic. And we are not that much nearer the idea than we were five years ago when I started writing about it. Yes, there's a few robo taxis in San Francisco and Phoenix, but they're probably largely remotely controlled. They only run uh, at night uh, when there's not too many people about. Uh, they have rather a lot of accidents. They find it very difficult to turn left, which is right, of course, in the, in the UK, across other uh, streams of traffic. Uh, there's all sorts of issues that suggest this is not going to happen. It will be a subject we'll return to quite a lot, I suggest, because there is a lot of interest in this. I remember going to a conference in uh, Washington three years ago, just before COVID, about this, and 25% of the papers at this transport conference were about driverless cars. So it's a big industry, but it hasn't produced anything viable yet. Well, yes, I'm sure we're going to return to that to that subject. But perhaps we should now talk about a 200-year-old industry that features very largely in all of our lives and in your writings in particular. And that's the railways, where there's certainly a, a, a lot going on. I mean, some of the features over the last couple of weeks, of course, have been the publication uh, or launch of the, the winter timetables uh, as recently as last Sunday, and in particular the promised restoration of uh, uh, some of the missing Avanti West Coast services. So that must be something that's registered on your radar. Uh, yes, indeed. But <laughs> it's uh, uh, really a work of fiction at the moment, isn't it? Um, uh, even Advanti admit that uh, they published the uh, timetable uh, a few days ago and then they sent out a press release saying, well, that's the services we hope to run sort of um, later uh, in the in the in the, well, early next year, um, with the hope that you know we will restore some of the services uh, that have been cut, but actually in the short term, uh, there's still quite a lot of absences. Uh, there's still no drivers to cover various shifts, uh, and of course uh, today, Mark, we've uh, got the train strikes, which we will be discussing uh, later. Uh, but um, you know, it's it's. Uh, uh, really, a, just a, a you know a s slight bit of positive news that might happen in a few months' time in the face of mounting kind of complaints. Now, notably, the guy who spent uh, several hundred pounds uh, going, I think it was from some Brighton, Brighton to Cardiff, to Bangor, wasn't it? A Brighton to Bangor, that's right, that's for right. some meeting, and he spent six hundred pounds first class open return. 
um, and then his train on the way there was late. His train on the way back was cancelled. Uh, there was no kind of first class service. You couldn't get any food on the train. And, uh, you know, he wasn't paying for it personally, but, uh, you know, he certainly saw it was a waste of money. And this this story, I mean, in my inbox, which I'm sitting in front of at the moment, you know, I get something every every day uh, from people about uh, the bad journeys they've had. Uh, this the is what you've called the nobody gives a damn railway, isn't it? It's, it's uh, yes, I've termed that in, in one of my rail comments. And the nobody gives a damn railway kind of really hit a, hit a note uh, in terms of people responding to me and people uh, uh, retweeting it and stuff. Because uh, it really does feel like that out there at times. And I'm sure you travel on the railways quite a lot too. And you've Indeed. experienced this. Indeed. That's my principal form of, uh, of, of transport. And of course, I think one of the factors in all of this is the continuing uncertainty about who's actually in charge of the railways. And that really wasn't given much more clarity a, a few days ago by the appearance of the new transport secretary at the House of Commons uh, Transport Select Committee, where he was asked about the future plans of uh, for Great British Railways and the implementation of the William Shapps plan for rail and, and more or less more or less said uh, I'm thinking about it <laughs> uh, this was picked up actually in the Sunday Times by Ed Conway who's uh, the economics editor of uh, Sky and uh, he made precisely that point and and actually his article was a, a pretty good run through of the whole story of privatization and, and highlighted the fact that I've often highlighted which is that you know, the, the, the railway was broken up uh, by privatisation and, and really it's a kind of artificial break between the various operations, uh, infrastructure and, and ownership of, of uh, trains. And uh, that that has really been a source of the problem. And now, of course, we've got that added problem of uncertainty uh, because of the cost of living crisis and the cuts due to COVID. Uh, but also uh, we've got the fact that really nobody is in charge. And that, that, I think, gets to the root of all the problems. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, a fat controller. And, and that's always been the case with privatisation. But I think what's become worse is the fact that now the private companies don't actually collect the revenue, they collect the fares any longer. They really haven't got much uh, uh, stick in the game anymore. And uh, the government refuses to run the railways because it doesn't kind of see it as their responsibility. Network Rail doesn't really have the powers to run the railway. So, uh, you know, we're, we're left in limbo. And the fact that Mark Harper <coughs> can't quite make up his mind is quite understandable given, you know, he probably knew nothing about the railways uh, six weeks ago when he first became Transport Secretary. Um, and it's a very sharp learning curve for people in that position. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the, the huge range of responsibilities that extends way beyond rail into some of the other modes of, of transport that we've discussed as well. But of course, right now, rail is front and centre on the political and media uh, agendas because of the industrial disputes that are uh, occurring around us. And you've got some pretty strong views about how this could be resolved, haven't you, Christian? Yes, I mean, I think I think that 
you know, there was a moment there where we might have been in danger of uh, getting out of date because it might have been resolved. But uh, I'm speaking here on Tuesday the 13th, and there was a danger that some of uh, that the issues might get resolved. Uh, but uh, luckily for the podcast, though, unfortunately for rail passengers, uh, there seems to be little prospect of any uh, resolution. And I think that uh, the same mistakes are being made over and over again. Uh, you know, ever since, I mean, I must have done, you know, about 30 or 40 broadcasts on this in, in various uh, radio stations, ranging from the Today programme to GB News. And really the message has always been the same, that the government needs to resolve this. And uh, what, what I've now... Uh, kind of understood and written about in, in my latest column in, in Rail Magazine is very much that one of the key problems is tying in the productivity agreements, kind of improved productivity uh, with the uh, uh, wage rises because the wage rises are a response to inflation or there's something that generally happens most years in most industries that people get paid more to compensate for inflation. Uh, and, and that's uh, the basis of it. And the problem that conflating the two has uh, meant that there's total deadlock because the government keeps on saying, well, you know, we will give you four, four, now four and five percent, nine percent over over two years to uh, network rail. But in return, we need certain changes in uh, the way you work. But uh, I just think that's mixing up two completely different issues because uh, you know there's no doubt that the rail workers have not had a pay rise for two years, so they uh, definitely need a pay rise that will cover this year, in fact, and then a pay rise that will cover uh, uh, next year. And, and that should be kind of give, granted to them, and then productivity issues should be uh, then sort it out. I think you have experience of this from your days in, in British Rail, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, from from my um, working life, um, there was an attempt uh, 40 years ago to join together the issues of cost of living pay uh, rises and productivity measures. In in some ways, the the irony is that things change, but things remain the same because one of those productivity issues being pushed by the employers 40 years ago was driver only operation and here we are uh, yet again with that uh, back on the agenda something that that keeps on coming back and i think you've made the point that when it comes to uh, at least trains without guards uh, or without a second member of uh, crew on board this is something that's not particularly popular with passengers is it no i mean i i think that it's a point that has been missed here which is that the railways are in a competitive market. They, you know, they, they're competing against uh, other forms of transport, uh, notably the private car, of course, but also possibly uh, buses and possibly the aeroplane in certain cases. Um, and they need to keep up to date. Uh, they need to be uh, in comfortable uh, seats. They need to... Uh, have uh, announcements that uh, give you vital information, but which don't kind of keep on repeating slogans all the time and drive you completely bonkers. Uh, they need to have catering on board. Uh, they need to have somebody 
who is saying, uh, coming round and, and helping passengers who, who need help with connections or when there's a delay, need sorting out or, or whatever. Um, and so they need a bit of TLC. And what seems to be emergent is that uh, the, de the Department for Transport, or possibly more the Treasury and Number 10, sort of pushing for a minimalist railway. You know, as few staff around as possible. Uh, you know, get rid of the platform staff if you can. Get rid of the guards. Uh, you know, don't have kind of uh, particularly kind of pleasant environments anywhere. Don't invest in the stations. Don't invest kind of in, in you know, making life a bit better for passengers. Uh, you know, Wi-Fi is an added extra and should we be paying for that when I think it's a basic service, you know, like having toilets uh, and all those things. And people are not going to go back to the railway if it's a minimalist service that is not fit for the 21st century. You know, this is, you know, people are now used to a certain uh, level of comfort and, and they want to be able to see out the window, you know, they want the toilets to be clean, all those things. And there's a real risk that if the staff are cut back so much, and if there is a nobody gives a damn feel to the whole thing, that uh, people will not kind of come back to the railways, apart from when they really want to. And in fact, uh, the railways are now different. Uh, the railways uh, now uh, are less a kind of automatic choice for commuters and more... Uh, a mode of transport of choice for people in discretion, what's called discretionary travel. I mean, leisure travel, maybe possibly business at times, but basically who uh, will choose trains because it's the, the quickest and, and uh, easiest way of getting around rather than, uh, you know, horrid drives in your car. And they, and they need to be pleasant to attract those people. It's interesting you've made that observation because I think the margins to the current uh, difficulties, even some of the employers of uh, employers organisations in rail, have made the point that there is an alternative model, which is get more people on the trains, get more passengers, get more fair fair revenue, and resolve the um, the problems of the industry at least in part by uh, by that means. Because of course we had that unprecedented uh, an, uh, requirement in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic of the government's, government and governments of the UK literally telling people not to travel by train in, uh, in, for public health reasons. Um, and we're still very much in the aftermath of that, aren't we? Uh, yes, I, you know, I, I wrote at the time that I thought they'd gone overboard in trying to uh, deter people and trying to suggest that you know it was so dangerous traveling the train that you're likely to die when actually you know there was a lot of space on trains and there was very little evidence that you could catch uh, COVID from uh, you know fleetingly passing uh, people uh, on trains. And evidence with modern ventilation systems that actually they were they were they were pretty good when it came to the uh, the quality of the air that you were. No, breathing. absolutely, and and. Uh, and, you know, what, what really depresses me is that I, I can't quite see a way out of this uh, because we need the sort of spirit that I wrote about in my book uh, on, on British Rail, uh, that in its heyday, which was the last four or five years of its existence, it had quite a lot of commercial freedom 
and very good railway managers, you know, uh, like uh, Chris Green and John Prido and and uh, uh, all those all those people who were, were uh, you know, quite adventurous in the way that uh, they looked at the industry and were prepared to kind of offer deals and, you know, uh make special kind of uh, uh train trips uh uh you know even to kind of uh you know uh things like flower shows and whatever um uh, you know and attract people onto the railways with concessionary tickets and the like and that kind of entrepreneurial flair just isn't possible under the present arrangement because everything is down to the dead hand of the uh, department for transport uh, who is then leaned on by the treasury and everything is contractualized you can't kind of do anything outside of those contracts and uh you know you end up with a, a kind of minimalist uh, service with kind of no uh, inspiration behind it when what we need is a railway that is uh, able to sell itself and, and attract people back so i i don't want to have a totally bleak picture because uh, you know, fundamentally, I'm an optimist and I love the railways and I know that lots of people uh, love them, but they're not very lovable at the moment, are they, Mark? I think that's the trouble. And yet, and yet what I observe, Christian, is on a, in, it, when there is a normal day, if you could call describe such a thing at the moment, a lot of the time the trains are bursting at the seams, that people do actually want to travel by train when the facility is there and the, and the opportunity is there. So that I'm sure there is... A lot of untapped demand. There were stability and uh, and and a pricing structure that people could understand and afford. No, I think that's right. I do think. Look, I, I, I in terms of the industrial dispute, uh, you know, I, I do see some wrong on both sides. Uh, you know, I certainly think that the, the government kind of mixing in uh, productivity arrangements, which actually apply only to quite a small number of the staff who who are on strike, actually, which is. One, one key point, they should negotiate with those staff rather than kind of negotiate it with the unions as a whole. But also, uh, you know, I see that as a uh, as kind of, you know, a fault. But on the other hand, I do worry about where the trade unions are going and, and you know, whether they realise that they are undermining their own industry and that, uh, you know, they, they are at risk of kind of turning the railways into something of a, a, a kind of basket case and changing people's perception of the railways, which has been kind of improving over the years to kind of back at the really bad old days of the worst days of British Rail, maybe in the 70s, uh, when, you know, it was just seen as a terrible form of transport and everything was dirty and it was kind of, uh, you know, something that you only used if you very much had to. And I'm, I'm worried that, you know, the the unions are creating a, a situation where that will be the perception of the railways for, for quite a long time to come, even once the strike is resolved. Perhaps that's a good point at which to end for this week, Christian. We can take stock next time of what progress has been made and also look at other developments across the uh, wide and interesting world of transport. Yes, I'm sure we'll come back to uh, this subject, but uh just ever as we won't only be talking about the railways we won't even be talking about uh the crisis on them we'll be talking about a lot of other things in this podcast over the weeks to come thank you mark thank you christian calling all 
Stations with Christian Woolmar is a Cogitamus Limited production. Our producer is Tom Harris. Thank you.